couple of weeks ago, I spoke on the topic of poverty, and I entitled it The Theology of Poverty. A couple of comments I received from that message that I want to clarify, uh, because I think some of what I said may have come across a little bit of confusing, and I do want to apologize where I caused some confusion. And some of the examples I may have used were confusing at the best and maybe misleading at the worst. And it's my job as a communicator that if I do communicate an example or, or, some, uh, or a picture or whatever, it actually may clear what I intend to say through it, and I fail to do that. And I do want to apologize for maybe you were confused about what is he trying to say actually with this example or this picture that I used. But more importantly maybe is just my failure to point to Christ. Because we're looking at the Old Testament, and what, what I was trying to achieve, what I was trying to do is look at the, the picture of poverty as the Old Testament shows it to us. It was a word study based on the Old Testament. To me, it was like a framework to understand the background, so to speak. But everything is fulfilled in Christ. And everything points to Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law. And Jesus actually came to fulfill the law. And that's what he said, I came to fulfill the law. But the law still stands as word of God to us. And so we can learn from the Old Testament because the Old Testament points out to us our human condition. Who are we? And it points especially to our sinfulness. And poverty, in many sense, is, is we are poor because we are broken people. Society is broken because we are broken. And the New Testament, and I failed to point to that in many ways, in, is what the poverty truly is. It's a spiritual issue. It's our spiritual poverty. And so that, would, that is my topic this morning. I want to finish the story, so to speak, of how Scripture teaches us about poverty in a holistic way by pointing to Christ Jesus. It was like, probably what it was like for some of you is like watching a movie and um, some of the movies you watch, you walk away from, and you just shake your head and say, what was he trying to say? You're like frustrating. And like, why is the story isn't finished? And it doesn't make sense. You watch the movie, and it just doesn't make sense. It lets you, it leaves you hanging. And that's not a pleasant feeling, isn't it? And so where I did this, and you were confused or maybe even frustrated, I do want to apologize, and I hope you'll be able to just forgive me for where I failed to communicate what I was hoping to communicate. Having said that, I want to move on to the New Testament and look at what Jesus taught about the poor. I want to begin actually by looking at the Psalms that we read, Psalm 70 together just now. And Psalm 70 talks about, David says, I am poor and needy. And he looks to God as being his Savior, the Savior of all. So in the Psalms, this is repeated over and over again. For example, in Psalm 40 verse 17, it says, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. I am poor and sorrowful. May your salvation, O God, protect me. Psalm 70, I'm poor, I'm needy. Come quickly to help me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. Psalm 86, hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I'm poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am devoted to you. Psalm 109, 22, I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. So David over and over says, declares, I am poor, I am needy. Now this is not a physical neediness. It's not a physical or materialistic poverty that David is faced with because David was not needy, so to speak. He was not materially poor. He was the king of an empire. He had plenty. 
Now he was looking at his heart. He was looking inside at his spirit, understanding that before God, before the creator of the universe who, who owns all things, who created it all, I am but a beggar. I am but a beggar pleading, pleading with God, save me. Be my protector. Be my deliverer. And I think this tone is said in the Psalms over and over to point us to Christ ultimately. So David was looking forward to the salvation which was yet to come. Last time we looked at the book of Job, we talked about the hardships that Job experienced. And, and the word hardship that is used in the book of Job actually can be translated from the word poor, poverty. And so Job experienced hardships. He experienced a sense of physical poverty that he went through. But it's in the midst of this that Job declares, Job chapter 19, I know that my deliverer lives. I know my Savior lives. And so the, the Old Testament looks forward to the coming of Christ. The Old Testament, which gives us the framework, which gives us the, the understanding of the human condition, but it looks forward to the coming of the Messiah, to the coming of Jesus. Now we look back. We can look back because Jesus came. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the Redeemer. And so we can look back at the life of Jesus to understand the greater picture, to find, actually find answers to this issue of poverty. And I believe that the New Testament helps us understand poverty in a bigger sense as a spiritual problem. We are poor, not first and foremost because we have physical needs, but we are poor because we have spiritual needs. We have separated us from God. We have rebelled against God. And out of this grows all the rest, the effects, the, the brokenness in our families, the brokenness in society, the brokenness in our own lives. Uh, whatever basically brokenness comes ultimately because we have separated us from God and we live in separation from God. That is our spiritual poverty. So let's look at the life of Jesus. There's a couple of principles I want to gain from the New Testament to talk about. As we look at the life of Jesus, so Jesus began his ministry in, um, in Galilee. He moved down to the Jordan River to be baptized, was baptized by John the Baptist. Then he went uh, into the, the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights where he was tempted. Uh, after, at the end of that time, he was tempted. He came out of this wilderness time, out of the baptism and the, the wilderness time, and then the temptation, understanding his calling, knowing who he was. And so he traveled. He began his ministry in Nazareth, as Luke tells us. Matthew picks up the story as Jesus uh, is in Capernaum, actually. But Jesus, is tra Jesus traveled all around Galilee from synagogue to synagogue proclaiming who he was. So he begins his ministry with Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is a quote from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Three things. To preach the good news to the poor to release those who are in oppression, and to open the eyes of the blind. What is he meaning by that? Is he meaning physical oppression? Is he meaning physical? People are blind physically, so he came to open the eyes of the blind physically, which he did, but he only did so many. 
I'm sure there were many more blind people in the day of Jesus that Jesus could have healed, but he didn't heal them all. He's not talking about a physical ailment. He's talking about our spiritual ailment. It's talking about, uh, and like, what does he mean by saying, he, I, I came to proclaim release to the captives or to set free those who are oppressed. If you, if you, look, if you continue to store in the book of Luke, the next thing that happens, so Luke then tells us, just like Matthew tells us, that Jesus went first to Cana, probably, according to John, where he did the first miracle, and then he went to Capernaum. He was in Capernaum, uh, yes, in Capernaum, he was in the synagogue, and he proclaimed there in Capernaum that he is, the people who are living in darkness have seen a great light. Who is that? Jesus. Which points again to the next point, which is blindness. But as he was preaching, as he was teaching from, from, um, from the book of, of Isaiah, a man stands up who is oppressed but, or demonized, a, de a demonic presence in his life, so he stands up and he yells at Jesus, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus says, be quiet. And he casts out the demon. So we know what Jesus means by releasing the oppressed, by those who are uh, under oppression or, or, or in bondage. It's not necessarily a physical bondage as it is a spiritual bondage. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your sins and transgressions in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. We are part of a kingdom of darkness. We are born into this kingdom unless we become free through Jesus Christ who came to release us out of the power of Satan into his kingdom. Why is that? Because we are in rebellion against God. So one, Psalm 107 talks about this darkness. Some sat in darkness, in utter darkness, prisoners suffering um, in iron chains because they rebelled against God's commands and despised the plans of the Most High. Verse 17, some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. Why do we suffer affliction? Why are we struggling? It's because we have rebelled against God. So the New Testament takes us through the book of Psalms and others. It takes us to the cause of our poverty, which is rebelling against God. What about blindness? Is it a physical blindness? Is it a spiritual blindness? Well, when Jesus stands in front of them, there in, the, in Capernaum, here's what he declares. The people walking in darkness. It's not, a spiritual, it's not a physical darkness, it's the spiritual darkness that's on the country. Because they had light, they had the sun, they had candles, whatever. It was not a physical darkness, it was a spiritual darkness. And Jesus says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Who? Me. I'm the light of the world. And he would declare so later on. I am the light of the world. The light has come into this world. And that becomes evident in that story where Jesus heals the man who was born blind in John chapter 9. And, and, and he opens his eyes. The man comes to know Christ. He actually, he finds him at the temple at the end of the story. He finds him at the temple in Jerusalem. He bows down before Jesus. He worships Jesus. And then Jesus declares that those who are blind now can see. But those who think they see are blind. And he looks at the Pharisees. Do you mean to say that we are blind? Yes, you are. Because it's a spiritual blindness. 
There's a spiritual oppression that we have to wrestle with. And we are born into a spiritual oppression. We are all born into a spiritual blindness because the Scripture teaches us that, that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. They cannot see. They cannot see the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's a spiritual blindness. By the way, that's what we need to pray. Our call to prayer is because, I mean, we can preach at people, we can teach people, we can even do Bible study with people, but ultimately what opens their hearts and minds is God himself. And it's a spiritual blindness that we are born into that only God can remove. That's what Jesus came to do. So he said, I came to open the eyes of the blind, spiritually speaking. But what about poverty then? So if uh, freeing from oppression is spiritual, if it's a spiritual blindness, what about poverty? Is poverty also spiritual or is it physical? I think from the context it's clear that it's spiritual. And as we continue the story actually in the life of Jesus, um, we know chronologically what happens next. So Jesus travels around uh, the towns in Galilee. He proclaims who he is. And then the next thing, according to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus goes up on a mountain. That's where the Sermon on the Mount comes in. He sits down. The disciples gather. Lots of people gather. And Jesus begins to preach. He teaches the most famous sermon that was ever preached and none of us will ever be able to surpass this because this is the word of God and he begins this way blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God he's not talking about material poverty he's not talking about our lack of resources. He's talking about our spiritual condition. And, and, and he's saying those who understand that they are poor in spirit, those who understand that they are needy before God, those who understand that without God, you're nothing. You have nothing to bring to God. You have nothing to offer to Him. You have nothing to sacrifice to Him. Nothing whatsoever. All you are is a poor person begging before the, the Lord Almighty. You're about a beggar. And those who understand their own spiritual poverty, Jesus is declaring, theirs is the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Faith begins where you look at your heart and you understand the condition of your heart as a wretched person. You're a wretched person. You're a wicked person. You have lost your way. You have removed yourself from God. You have rebelled against the creator of the universe. And the condition you're in is because of your spiritual poverty. I remember a story that um, I, I can't actually find this story. I was looking for it. I can't find it. I just remember one of our teachers telling this story at seminary. And it stuck, it stuck to me because he spoke to me, I guess. And I've never been able to verify it, but I hope it'll speak to you as well. It's a story about Martin Luther. And he says, here's what Martin Luther supposedly said. He says, here's how I will enter into the kingdom of God, literally. I will cling, I will cling to the heel of my Savior and be dragged into God's presence like a beggar, begging, hanging on to the heel of Christ. And so as he drags me into the, in, in, into the Father's presence, and the Father looks at him and says, 
Who is that wretched man that you bring into my presence? I will look to him, I look to Christ to say these words, a wretched man he is, but he clings to me. Let him in. It's not my righteousness. It's not what I have done. See, Luther, he achieved so much, but he understood his heart. He understood who he was before God. See, unless you understand your spiritual condition, you, unless you understand your own brokenness, your own wickedness, your own lostness, grace is meaningless, isn't it? Grace is but cheap. Mercy is not really needed. You know, we, we treasure this song that we just sang, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved who? Saved who? A wretch, a wretch like me. Unless you understand your wretchedness, you don't need Christ. You don't need Jesus. It's only through our wretchedness, it's through our wickedness, through our own spiritual poverty, that we actually become aware of the grace of God and embrace this grace of God. And Jesus said, I come to make you rich. Here's a quote from Corinthians where Paul says, you know the grace of our God, Lord Jesus Christ. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, in the presence of God, the God eternal, the Son of God, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Scripture tells us about wealth and poverty in a spiritual sense. Yes, we have physical needs, but our greatest need is spiritual. Our greatest need is to know the treasure which is eternal, which we can only receive through Jesus Christ. And he told the story of the person who went out, he found this one pearl, and he sold everything just to have this one pearl, which represents the kingdom of God. As we work with people, let's say we were able to resolve all the poverty in the world. Yet, Scripture tells us, what good is it to man to gain, his, to gain the whole world, yet lose his soul? It doesn't help anything if we just solve physical issues, if we just help people get out of poverty for the sake of getting out of poverty. That doesn't resolve anything. As, as a church, we always have a spiritual calling. And our first calling is to lead people to the point of their own spiritual poverty. You need to understand who you truly are before God. Only then, only then, can you actually receive the grace of God and lives can be changed? So as we move on in, uh, in the storyline of the life of Jesus, we get to the story of, to the point where um, John the Baptist is in prison. And uh, he's, he's confused. At this point, he's confused um, because he knew who Jesus was. He was there at the baptism. Uh, he baptized Jesus. He heard the voice of God declare, this is my beloved son, listen to him, uh, with whom I am well pleased. So he heard the voice of God. He knew who Jesus was, yet now months or, I don't know, maybe a year has, have passed. John is in prison. He looks at society and nothing has changed. Society is still the same. The Romans are still in charge. People are still suffering. People are still struggling. Injustices are still happening, so to speak, that even he himself is in prison waiting to be beheaded. So at this point, he is confused. So he sends two of his disciples to Jesus to ask him this question, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? 
He's just wondering, Jesus, why? Why are things not changing? Why are things not getting better? If you are the Messiah, and I think that was so many Jews were confused about that, thinking that the Messiah would come to get rid of the Roman Empire and to, to bring back the glory days of David. Jesus didn't come to do that. He didn't come to set them free from the oppression of the Roman Empire because it's a deeper impression, oppression that is happening. It's a spiritual oppression. So he, he says this back to, uh, to John the Baptist. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. What's he doing? What is Jesus doing? He's repeating his calling back to John, uh, to John the Baptist. He says, this is what I came for to open the eyes of the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to preach the good news to the poor. But they're still poor. He didn't come to solve the issues of society. He came to solve our spiritual poverty first and foremost. It's very important for us to understand that the emphasis in the New Testament, although the Old Testament helps us understand the framework of poverty, it helps us understand the the background, why is there poverty? What injustice and, and things are happening? We understand this from the Old Testament, from the storyline of the Old Testament, but it doesn't solve anything. Now, the New Testament then points us to Christ and saying it's through Christ Jesus that we understand that we are first and foremost spiritually poor. There's one more story I want to get to before we get to the second principles. And that's the story of Mary, and I think we read that recently in our, um, uh, in our Bible reading. John chapter 12, or others. Um, Jesus is about to be crucified. This is the last week of his life. Mary, um, the sister of, of, of Martha and, and, and of Lazarus, she gets on her knees, she weeps. She, uh, she, she wipes Jesus' feet with her tears to express her deep love for Christ. She takes her hair, she dries his feet with her hair, and then she takes this expensive uh, char of, um, of oil or perfume and pours it off the, on the feet of Jesus just to express how much he is worth to her. You are more worth to me than, than all the perfume, all the money in the world. Judas Iscariot and some of the other disciples, and by the way, Judas Iscariot, as much as I know, he never spoke up throughout the Gospels. You don't hear him say anything. But here he speaks up. He says, wouldn't it have been better to take this perfume, sell it to the poor and give them, uh, sell the money and give the mo money, sell the perfume and give the money to the poor? Wouldn't that have been better? Well, wow, smart thinking, isn't it? Give money to the poor. Well, John tells us that his intent really wasn't to help the poor. His intent was to enrich himself because he was in charge of the wallet. He had the money belt and he would help himself to it. But that's beside the point. Good thought, though. Help the poor. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you will always have the poor. You will not always have me. So Jesus is basically declaring, I didn't come to solve societal injustice, first and foremost, because you will always have poor. We live in a broken world. There are broken systems. Out of the broken systems gross brokenness. I didn't come to resolve your problems. I came. I came 
to preach the good news to the poor, those who can receive it, to be healed by knowing Him as our Lord and Savior. I came to open their eyes, and I came to free those who are oppressed. Now, out of this gross change, even in a society, and, as, and, and we know historically that where a society turns to Christ, the society changes because people change. See, Jesus didn't come to work with society so much as he came to work with individuals to change us from the inside out. And, and a changed person will change his life. That is sort of the thrust of the New Testament. Having said that, I do want to point to a second principle in uh, the New Testament. A second thing for us to understand as the New Testament talks about our poverty, it also says some things about being poor that I want to emphasize. And basically says there's, there's true poverty and there's false poverty. A couple passages I want to point out. Paul spoke, um, he was in Thessalonica, and he, he preached in Thessalonica. They responded to the gospel. And then in his second letter to the Thessalonians, in chapter 3, he tells them this rule. I don't want you to be idle. I don't want you to be lazy. I want all of you to provide for your own needs. Because we, me, Paul himself, and Barnabas, and whoever was with him, we came to you, we were poor, but we made you rich. He says to the Corinthians, we were poor, but we made you rich. So if we provided for our own needs. So should you. Then he goes on and says in verse 10, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. It's a pretty strong word, isn't it? Remember what the Old Testament said in the book of Proverbs? If you are lazy, you're not going to work the field. No wonder you're poor. If you are not self-disciplined, it will end up in poverty. If you're chasing fantasies, it will end up in poverty. And so the New Testament re-emphasizes what the Old Testament teaches and says, yes, if the person is not willing to work, he shall not eat. Because somebody has to work for you. Somebody has to work for you. And Scripture teaches us that we are responsible for our own needs. So we should do that. But then he goes on and talks about the, uh, the issue of, um, and we pointed to that last time as well, what about the widows and the orphans? What about those in society who are marginalized, those who are um, downtrodden? What about those who are truly poor? Well, here in Timothy, he teaches about this. Let's read this together. He says, give proper recognition to those widows who are truly, really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. These are very strong words that Paul uses here. Now, I want to just make a couple of observations, because it applies to how do we as a church 
How do we as a community, how do we wrestle with the concept of poverty? First and foremost, it's a spiritual issue. But what about physical poverty? Let me point this out to you. I believe that at the core of society is not the church. The church is at the core of the kingdom of God. When it comes to the kingdom of God, to the body of Christ, the church is the basic unity through which God works. But when it comes to society, culture, worldwide, it doesn't matter if this is a Christian culture, a Muslim culture, a Buddhist culture, whatever, it doesn't actually matter. But the, the system that God put in place is what? The core unit is the family. It's not the church. It's the family. And so Paul is basically teaching the first line of defense against poverty is what? Not the church. It's the family. So he's telling them if a widow has children or grandchildren, what should they do? They should learn to put their religion into practice. They should do what is right because it's pleasing to God by taking care of the needy person. It's the family that should kick in. It's the family that should help. Have you ever had this happen to you where people come to you, uh, to a church, asking for money, basically say, you, you, you owe us. You owe us. You're a church. You're supposed to help the poor. Have you ever had that happen? Actually, no, we owe, we owe you the gospel. We owe you the gospel. We help, you have to understand your spiritual poverty, but it's the family. I know that there's broken families, but according to God's plan, it's the family, first and foremost, which deals with the issues of poverty. And that's why Satan is undermining the family, by the way. If he can break the family, he breaks society. We have broken societies because we have broken families. A second observation is that Paul is saying... Um, Fulfilling your responsibility is more important than pursuing your pleasure in life. Listen to that. It's not the fun in life that is most important. It's your, fulfilling your responsibility. He says that is pleasing to God, to do what you ought to do. Now, fun is part of it. Like the youth just went to Summersville jumping off cliffs. You know, it's like, yeah, that's fun, isn't it? For some, it's fun. For others, maybe not. But so... But that's not life. You cannot go to Somersville jumping off cliffs every day of your life because life is the daily grind of, of doing what you're supposed to do in providing for your families. And that is hard. That is difficult. But Scripture endorses us and tells us that is your responsibility. And then, then he goes on in a third observation. It says, if anyone does not provide for their relatives, for their own household, he has actually denied his faith. And he's worse than an unbeliever. How can he be worse than an unbeliever? You claim to be a Christian. You claim to follow Jesus. Yet you're not fulfilling your responsibilities to your family. How can you be worse than an unbeliever? Because you trust in Christ. Because even non-believers can take care of their families. And you're not doing the basic duty to your family. He says, you're actually denying your faith. That, these are strong words. But what God is after, and you see, this is our calling as a church where he comes in. That what we need to be concerned is we need to make sure that families are strong. If the families are strong, if the families are intact, society is intact. Society is strong. Society can deal with the issues of need that surround them if the family is at the core, is, is, whole, is whole. That's why as a church, we want to work with families. We want to make sure that families stay strong 
in following Christ Jesus. The last observation is, although um, he points that out negatively, he says, still there are some. There are some who truly are widows. There are some people who truly are in need. And he says, those who truly are in need, they will look where first? Where will they go first? To God. They will go to God first. They will trust God. They will pray day and night to God. But then Paul says, for those people, absolutely, you have a responsibility. As a church, you have a responsibility to such as these to take care of them. My third and last point is that I want to point out that wrestling with poverty is ultimately an issue of discipleship. It's, it's bringing people to the point of spiritual poverty. So as we work with poor, and as we are a community church, and that was, that was, I was trying to wrestle through that a couple of weeks ago, and it probably came across wrong in a sense. Like, is, is he proposing action for the sake of action? Is he like preaching a social gospel, a social justice gospel? No, I'm not at all. I don't want to go there. I think we need, at the Old Testament, I showed you this last time, remember, sort of um, an overview of the Old Testament. We did a little bit of a word study. Again, the Old Testament helps us understand the causes of poverty. It helps us understand the framework, but it doesn't resolve. But our calling is not to resolve the issues of society. Our calling as a church is spiritual. Our calling as a church is to work with people individually and bring them to the point of their own brokenness, to bring them to the point where they understand their need of redemption. And it's only at that point that people truly can change. If not, it's like putting lipstick on a pig. It won't last. So it's the inner transformation which needs to happen. I spoke on um, last week, I also mentioned from my, our own experience in the Philippines where we saw poverty as a lack of option. When you come to the point of where there's simply no more options, there's nowhere to turn anymore. What is the only road open? The only road that is always open to us is which one? It's the road to God. And people will only take that as the last resort. They'll, they'll try everything else except be broken before God. That is repentance. That is repentance. And Jesus, in the synagogue in Capernaum, the first word was repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So we need to take people to this point of repentance. So as we, as we, as we struggle through this issue, how do we help people holistically? Sometimes we may have to help a person, but if a person is not willing to work through their own issues, if a person is not willing to be actually see their problem in a, in a context of, I'm a broken person, I need to know Christ, I need to be discipled, we're not really helping that person become fully whole again. What good is it to man if he gains the whole world, yet loses his soul, Jesus said. We don't want to bring them the world. We want to bring them Christ. That is our calling. Having said that, I believe there is a responsibility. We want to work with the poor. We want to find a way of how we can do this 
in a good way, in a holistic way. So that, is my, that is my desire in, in speaking about this. As, as we look into the future, as we look into moving up to Maiden Lane, <clears throat> is how can we engage our society? How can we be a community church that is alive, a community church that actually engages our society and tries to help people in a holistic way? That was my desire in just showing you the full picture. I hope that all of you have come to this point of brokenness. I hope that all of you understand at the core you are a wretched person. That is not a nice thing to hear, but you are. You are a wicked person. You are wicked. You are wretched. You are hopeless. You are needy. You are poor. You are nothing. Our glory is not yourself. Your glory is not what you have in yourself. It's not what you can bring to God. Our glory is Christ Jesus. He is our wealth. He is everything to us. And unless you understand this, unless you understand you're truly who, what your heart is like, you don't know Jesus, honestly. You don't know Him who is the treasure for all. Let me just give this invitation. If some of you have never really found Christ, if none, some of you have never really actually come to this point of brokenness or admitted your own brokenness before God and actually just, just given up, capitulate before God. You're not spiritually poor yet, but there's an open door for all of us to become so spiritually poor that we, like David, cry out, I am poor and needy. Save me. Save me. If you've never done this before, do it now. Do it right now. Let's pray.